Hello, and welcome. I'm Dr. Christina Spaulding, and this is the Research Bites podcast brought to you by Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior. We foster conversations about science and its application to animal training and behavior in an effort to improve well-being for animals and the people they live with. This version of the podcast is the first half of a longer version, which is available to Research Bites members. If you would like more information on that membership, it will be available at the end of the podcast. For now, please enjoy geeking out about the science of behavior. Welcome back to the Research Bites podcast. Before we get started on this episode, I want to tell you about two classes that I have coming up this fall. The first is the Science of Fear, which starts on Thursday, September 15th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also watch recorded lectures. You'll learn the science behind the development and effective treatment of canine fears, phobias, and fear-based aggression. On October 24th, my certificate course, Unlocking Resiliency, begins. Unlocking Resiliency is a 16-week course that covers all the different aspects of information related to stress and resiliency and puts them into one cohesive, in-depth narrative. This one course will cover everything you need to know about the impacts of stress and how we can cultivate the development of resilience in our animals. For more information, visit www.sciencemattersllc.com. My guest today is Dr. Sasha Protopopova. She is an assistant professor and natural sciences and engineering research council of Canada industrial research chairholder in animal welfare at the University of British Columbia. If that sounds familiar, that's because my last guest, Dr. Von Kaiserlink, is at the same university in the same department. They are doing a lot of great work there. Dr. Proto Popova is a certified applied animal behaviorist and has a PhD in applied behavior analysis from the University of Florida. Her research interests are in improving animal shelter practices, improving companion animal welfare through the development of behavioral interventions in shelters as well as pet homes, and assessing and improving the well being of dogs working in assistance roles. In this episode, we discuss increasing the adaptability of shelter dogs, the human side of animal sheltering and rescue, and ethical issues related to domestic animals. Let's get started. Welcome, Sasha. So thank you so much for joining me today. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because you're doing some really interesting work that I really haven't seen anyone else doing in the dog world in, in terms of certain sort of human animal relationship aspects of living with companion animals. So we will get into that shortly. But the first thing I want to start with is, can you just talk a little bit about your background and how you got into the field? Sure, sure. So I think I was always uh, animal obsessed, I think, as, as most of us were when we were children. I was actually much more of a horse had a horse obsession rather than a dog obsession. Yeah. But that switched, I think, pretty quickly. Maybe in high school, I got my first under the table job as a dog walker <laughs> and was unfortunately watching a bit too much seasonal on at the time. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but very quickly, I think earlier than perhaps some others in the field, I accidentally stumbled upon Karen Pryor's blog. This was quite early on. So it was before, like, it was just like a little blog on the website <laughs> I had to dig through. And, um, and so I, I, I became extremely fascinated and uh, tried utilizing some of the 
uh, kind of clicker training techniques with the dogs I was walking and was just amazed at the emotional change I saw in the dogs when I would ask them, for example, for a sit that was trained the seasonal way versus some trick that I saw that I trained with a clicker and just the the happiness that would come with one, not the other. So I was hooked, I think, early on in high school already. Right. I I knew that I, I wanted to go into research. Research was not new to me. My I'm actually a third generation researcher. (laughs) <laughs> so my parents are scientists and my grandparents are scientists on both sides of my parents. And, and so I was very interested right away as an undergrad to mm-hmm. pursue uh, volunteering in research labs. And I uh, was very fortunate that I got um, some experience with rhesus macaques and animal cognition early on. But I kept wanting to train them. And my BI <laughs> in the lab kept telling me to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, I, I kind of uh, used my uh, need to train animals, and uh, I, w- I was a, a trainer in PetSmart for a number of years, or sorry, Petco, a number of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I kept kind of being told that there's no place in for animal training and animal cognition research or real research because we want to study the real behavior of animals and so on. And so I was a bit discouraged. I thought I was going to have to have those two things as very separate. But then all of a sudden I came across Clive Wynn, Dr. Clive Wynn, who was then my graduate advisor later on. But I came across him in a really funny way. I was volunteering or I was an intern in a lab in Harvard uh, who's studying dog cognition. And um, again, not training, but very kind of uh, uh, cognition research. And I overheard someone say that, oh, there is this uh, crazy scientist in Florida, Clive Wynn in Florida at the time, crazy scientist in Florida who says the dogs don't actually love us. And I was like, who is this crazy scientist <laughs> who thinks the dogs don't love us? And so I came across Clive. Uh, and of course, he never said such thing. Um, and in fact, his newest book is <laughs> My Dogs Love Us <laughs> as much as they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but he was a perfect connection, connecting animal learning or behavior analysis, as I later on understood what it was called, with animal welfare and animal behavior. And so I was really, really fortunate to connect my two loves of behavior and training and, and pursue my master's and PhD research with, with him in the University of Florida. And he was the one who uh, really kind of highlighted what the field is and that's the field of behavior analysis. And also um, that sheltering is where it's at. I was really focused on animal training, dog training, but kind of guided me into the shelter and I never left the shelter once I, I got a taste of it. Right. Yeah. And, and he's actually, you know, he's been pretty influential, at least in the U.S. in terms of training PhDs to go into this field because several people on this podcast have been trained by him. So, yeah. And people ask me a lot about programs in animal behavior. So I always try and ask, where did you get your undergraduate done? And were you studying animal behavior as an undergraduate or were you looking at something else? That's a really good question. I think it depends what we mean by when we say animal behavior. So animal behavior is kind of a broad term and we can probably talk about different, multiple different scientific fields within that. So so in terms of my own personal degree, I was um, I had I have two bachelor's degrees, one in neuroscience and one in pre-veterinary science, and that that was my way of making an animal behavior <laughs> degree for myself. So so behavior analysis was not part of my undergraduate career. That was so if we t- we're talking about animal behavior from the perspective of behavior analysis, that field there's not so many opportunities in North America or in the world to study that at the undergraduate level for sure. Um, a few more at the graduate level, but unfortunately we're, we need to grow this field more in the animal realm. Yes, I agree. I know. I think when people maybe are talking about animal behavior or if you see university courses or degree types that have animal behavior in them, people are probably talking about ethology so, um, or behavioral ecology. So that, that would be the same. That would be the same thing. So, and that is slightly 
it's, it's a very important field and one that you, we must know, but it's not going to help with animal training, for example. Right. Or it doesn't directly address those. No, no. But it is important background to understand animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had a similar experience because I, I went into my undergraduate career wanting to learn about animal behavior. And I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which actually has a very large sort of menu of majors in biology. And I started off in zoology and that wasn't quite fitting what I was looking for. And so then I switched to wildlife ecology, which really didn't cover behavior, but it was the mm -hmm. closest thing <laughs> yeah. that I could find to animal behavior because that at least covered how animals sort of interacted with their environments. And that was about as close as I could get. And then my PhD is in biopsychology in a human department, you know, a human psych department. So it is, it is hard. Yeah, and now it's even more complicated with the introduction of animal cognition, because now that's a whole other field. And also I'm learning historically animal science, departments of animal science have their own animal welfare kind of sub-discipline. And within that sub-discipline of animal welfare from this animal science, like agricultural animal welfare, there's also a behavior aspect as well that has a very different tradition and a very different scientific kind of background and philosophy of it so so I'm, I'm now kind of also getting exposed to that and being very surprised that so so i think animal behavior is, is such an umbrella term for you really have to know kind of what discipline or what field you're coming at it and, and ideally from all all disciplines would be perfect right exactly yes and and i hope i mean we'll have to see how things play out but i hope that that's going to start to change a little bit in terms of more opportunities for people who really do want to pursue this i mean i think gives people get trained and take faculty positions that we may start to see that this is going to change a little bit. So, so that brings us to what you're studying. And, and obviously you're looking at several different things, but I wanted to start with your shelter research and your shelter research has really focused on seems two primary areas. And the one is sort of the impacts of the various interventions, um, that we can conduct at the shelter on behavior and adoption and shelter dogs. And then the second part is that more human side of sheltering and how inequity plays a role in that. So what I wanted to do is start with looking at the dogs and what you've studied in terms of the different interventions and how that impacts them. And then we can move on to the human side of things after that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I came into the shelter environment as in a very kind of clear mindset of an animal trainer where this, the problem was such that there are some animals in the shelter, they, they are likely stressed, and what can I do to improve their welfare, but also get them out. And, um, and I think that was kind of a, an early naive perspective that I had. I realized that very quickly in the very first study in the master's where, again, I just quickly assumed that, okay, if I train a dog to look in the eyes of the adopter, all would be great and absolutely no effect on adoption rates. <laughs> I did train those dogs, so we saw an increase in eye gaze behavior uh, into strangers' eyes, but zero increase in adoptions. It was a very interesting master's, but I, I think it was the first time where I realized that how naive I was and how I'm coming in into this very complex, uh, I guess, discipline or field of sheltering without having a very good understanding of that um, we, we say here in, in this department here at the university, how do they say it? Not one thing is ever one thing. That you can't just uniquely look at this one thing, change something small, and think you've done something good. That you really have to take a step back and really understand the whole shelter and the whole kind of community and society as a whole. And so, and so really that has been guiding my research in both of those streams that you've mentioned. 
where uh, I'm not so interested, even though we've done a little bit of that now with cats, especially in cat housing, that I don't, I'm not so interested in improving little small details of the shelter. I'm not so interested in kind of coming in and asking the question of, will having this particular toy uh, do anything or will adding a meter to the enclosure do something? I'm not so interested in this kind of incremental change to the shelter, but what I do want to do is to like understand what kind of impacts can we have on a much broader level to benefit all animals and all humans. And so, and so that's been kind of what my, why those two things are there. And thinking of that kind of greater, kind of taking a step back and looking at the whole picture is I realized very quickly how unhappy dogs are in shelters. And this is um, not necessarily my own research, but from previous research that does show that when dogs are coming into the shelter, you see a spike in, um, for example, cortisol levels. But I think anyone who's been to the shelter can very quickly realize what a terrible environment is for, for any animal. And this is really true for, honestly, every shelter facility type. It's even if uh, we are obviously trying our best, even in really, really beautiful facilities, high, high staffing facilities, you're still in a situation where the animal is spends primarily most of the time alone. Uh, interactions are not consistent. You have strangers coming in and out. You have noise levels. You have uh, strange smells, smell ammonia, bleach. I mean, it's, it's just not a nice environment, however you want to put it. They have been also separated from their attachment figures. It's just, um, and this is only about dogs. Of course, if you speak about cats, it's even a bigger disaster for those animals. And so I think one thing that not just me, of course, but all of researchers who are in sheltering are kind of coming to this understanding that shelters are terrible <laughs> for animals. Uh, even when we try our best, they're just not great places for animals in, in the current capacity. This is, of course, why I think in modern times, we're moving more to a foster-based attempt rather than kind of having this institutionalized facilities to house animals. But given that that's the case, given that these animals are suffering when they're in the shelter environment, I realized that adding a toy or adding a, a bed, of course, these are necessary things, but that's not going to dramatically improve their welfare. What's going to improve their welfare is getting them out of that shelter. And so that's why my focus has been on getting them out. What can we do to increase those adoption rates? And so, so to me, increasing adoption rates has a very direct uh, welfare link that it's not just to kind of have people be happy with their pets, but it's to, so that they, they don't live in those facilities. Ultimately, all of the goals mm -hmm. of the shelter is not to have any dogs or any, any animals right. in the shelter. Right. <laughs> so we want to get ourselves out of business. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why I've been focusing on this adoption piece. And so by focusing on the adoption piece, my first question was that instead of me assuming kind of naively that I know what people want from dogs, that I need to actually take data on this. I need to ask the question empirically of what people are looking for in dogs with the hope, of course, because I'm still a trainer, but the hope that we can do something to you really to, to make sure that the dogs are not um, showing themselves in a bad light. And also, of course, that we could, we all know from personal experience and from previous research that people are picking based on the looks of the dog, all the little puppies, the little dogs, fluffy dogs, uh, certain purebred dogs, they're all going to get, get out of the shelter very quickly. But what about the, the others? What can we do for the others to get them out as well as quickly as possible? And so my first set of research was looking at the behavior of the dogs in the kennel and seeing if anything predicts length of stay. And we did find that some behaviors predicted length of stay, but perhaps not surprisingly, but sadly, behavior in the kennel seemed to play a very minor role in people's decisions. Very, very minor role. There were some things that dogs were doing that made their attractiveness worse. So dogs that stayed in the back, didn't come up front, uh, leaned in the back or engaged in this kind of back and forth motion, that 
increase their length of stay. So people were not interested in those drugs. And this makes sense because ultimately you need to, those are the behaviors that prevent the person from evaluating the looks of the dog. And how stupid is that, right? It's so uh, pessimistic because when you compare the effects of behavior compared to the effects of morphology of what the dog looks like, the morphology trumped behavior completely. People were really choosing based on the looks of the dog. That's such an interesting thing, you know, because I'm thinking about this from sort of this co-evolutionary standpoint, and I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, what would drive that? Because it seems to me that behavior should be more important, but at least in this context, you know, maybe it's a more rapid appraisal, you know, than looking at behavior, but it is a really interesting and surprising finding to me that I know that it's true, you know, I've seen it, but <laughs> I'm still surprised by it. It's very surprising. And I was very disheartened by it. Not only because it means that we can't, can we not do anything or kind of what, what is our, what do we do now for these dogs who are not long coated and pure red little toy dogs, but actually it made sense. So the more I thought about this, and this is again, what I, what I mean by taking a step back and considering the whole picture rather than kind of looking at data individually by experiment by experiment is that I realized that what we're looking, what we're looking at here is I'm just looking at a, a snippet of how consumers make decisions about essentially a purchase decision. In our case, the purchase decision is adoption. Product is our animals. This sounds terrible, but it's, it's fundamentally, there's a whole science of how people make these kinds of purchase decisions. And when we think about that as kind of from a consumer perspective, it actually all makes sense. So people do have preconceived notions of what they want in the dog. So for example, imagine if I were to ask you, what's your next dog going to be like? you probably are going to tell me the breed uh, and you're probably going to tell me female male. You're probably going to tell me, oh, I really want a short-coated or a long-coated dog. We probably are not going to talk about color. And that's actually, color does not seem to matter too much in the in kennel selection. But you probably are going to say if you want a big dog, a small dog, a long-coated, short-coated, breed or not breed. And so those are the things that were driving the decisions. And so that explains that initial selection. But that's actually not where you're going to finish, right? Your, your, your search. You're going to go to the shelter. You're going to take a look at all the dogs you have in your mind. I want a small, short-coated dog, or if it's the average person, short, uh, small dog, long-coated dog, a puppy. Uh, so essentially a puppy Pomeranian is the, is the one that's going to yeah, okay. fly out of the shelter. So you're looking for a puppy Pomeranian and you go to the shelter and you find your puppy Pomeranian. And so in this case, you're not just going to fill out the adoption paperwork. Although some people might, but the majority will not. The majority will ask, oh, can I take this dog out of this kennel into some kind of interaction area? And can I get to know this dog to make sure that they are okay with me? And this is what's happening, that people are, uh, once they've selected a dog from this in-kennel selection, which is about uh, essentially maybe like 1% of dogs would be selected. So very, we need a lot of visitors to adopt dogs. So bringing visitors to the shelter is super important because there's only very few dogs that are going to come out into the second level of selection in this meet and greet area. But this is where, yet again, I've done research looking at how people are making decisions in the meet and greet areas. And here, luckily, it seems like they're making those decisions based on behavior uh, and not at all morphology because they've already made their decision on morphology in the first step. And so this is where we took a look at these naturalistic uh, situations where adopt real adopters are interacting with their potential dogs that they're going to adopt in these meet and greet areas. And we did find that some behaviors did predict likelihood of adoption. So those behaviors were if a dog laid down in proximity to the adopter, that increased their chances of adoption. But if the dog rejected play initiation, so what I mean by that is an adopter would take a toy and be like, look, dog, 
do you want to play? And would throw the ball and the dog would look at the ball and be like, eh, no, never mind. I don't want to play. And so <laughs> right. that was uh, totally uh, limiting the, so that would reduce adoption. And fundamentally, I think the more I've kind of done research on this particular topic, I realized that I think people want to be loved. <laughs> they want, <to> <laughs> want to be, feel special. They want to feel that their animal chose them. They feel, you know, yeah. that. And, and so I think those behaviors highlight that, that choosing aspect of the dog. They feel that the dog has come and has chosen them. And so that's why any kind of rejection, like ignoring play initiation, is really um, hurtful for the adopter. Right. That's interesting. I, I wonder if you've, this just occurred to me as you were talking, when we were talking about how few dogs get selected and how it's based on, you know, sort of morphology. And what about the idea of instead of sending potential adopters back into the kennels to say these are the dogs that I want to see do you know if anyone has any shelters have sort of tried an alternative approach where the the people say this is what I'm looking for and then the shelter staff go back and select the dogs mm-hmm. yeah and I'm and I'm wondering if that might help some of the dogs that are not getting yeah. chosen Really interesting approach. And um, with COVID especially, I think I, w- I want to say a lot of shelters in the U.S. Um, have moved into this kind of process. So it's not only by kind of appointment only that a lot of shelters now you don't, you can't actually go back and look at all the dogs. Now, and, and the shelters anecdotally are reporting success. They're reporting that things are looking really good. I can see it, the benefits directly in that you're pushing, you're kind of taking away that first step and you're moving immediately into the second step. And of course, some, I think if we kind of force people not to consider morphology, because ultimately if the animal's in front of them and they're lovely, maybe some people will overlook the lack of preferred morphological characteristics. I, be, I bet you would see a decrease in success because ultimately they are going to choose a bit on morphology anyway. If, if it's a bigger dog than you wanted, you'll, you'll have that as a negative in your in your uh, decision about this animal. But in terms of research on this, I don't know of, some, of any research studies that directly look at this, at this kind of directly, directly. The one thing that there is an animal welfare benefit to this as well, that there is research suggesting that when you limit visitors in the shelter, dogs spend more time in quiet conditions, spend more time laying down. I think that's that's fine. My only question would be that we do need data because it may be the case that some animals are going to be adopted out this way, but what about the full shelter, the full population of the shelter? Are we going to see fewer or like kind of very staff favorites go out, but not not staff favorites? Or I'm not sure. I don't know. I think we do need data on this. I'm I'll be nervous to prioritize kind of short-term welfare of the dogs for a longer sleep because ultimately they're in a bad condition. They need to go to the home. Uh, they need to get out of the shelter. And so I think adoption is more important than kind of these small scale changes for kind of small but Im- immediate but very small benefits to welfare. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that makes that makes a lot of sense. So going back to the this interaction behavior, you know, some of what you're talking about can be trained. Yes, yeah. You know, certainly is teaching the dog to lie down next to the adopters, teaching teaching play behavior may be a little bit more complicated, particularly in shelters that, you know, have very limited time. But, you know, have you looked at all at having people train these behaviors and then see if that is impactful? Yes, absolutely. So that was my uh, PhD thesis, was exactly this. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's 
And it's funny because I had the same feeling as you as where, okay, now I know those two target behaviors to train because again, I'm really coming at it from a training perspective. I was like, okay, down, I can teach a down, like that's fine. And actually later on, they're really innovative ways to teach the down because it's not just a down, it's a down next to strangers, <laughs> next to a new stranger, right? Right. Uh, the adopters. And so there's actually a really wonderful solution by the San Francisco Animal Care and Control uh, Behavior Director there where she is part of the training based on this research. Later on, she would put a mat next to a bench in the meet and greet room. And so it was the down onto a mat oh. and the bench had the stranger who had the adopter. Yes. And so that one didn't actually matter too much, but the dog was trained that I'll just go target the mat and that created this proximity in the down. And so the person felt chosen. So super cool. Um, so I think, yeah, some trainers are just absolutely um, innovative and really, really clever in how to construct these things. But yeah, so I felt like the down is okay. <laughs> But the, not ignoring play initiation, I spent so long trying to figure out how am I going to do this? And um, and I think of myself as a, like an okay trainer, but I, first off, for the life of me, I can't train dogs to play fetch. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's because it's I, I had terriers yeah. and I just like, they're not into it. And um, I don't know. And I was like, how am I going to teach like 300 shelter dogs to play fetch? And I like in, in two minutes, like, <laughs> I don't know how to do it because ultimately shelters don't have enough staff to do. To, to spend time properly teaching anyone anything. And so I, I, I was really kind of suffering <laughs> trying to figure out how I'm going to, I'm going to, what am I going to do with this data? And once I was in the shower, as all epiphanies came, come right. during moments, that <laughs> strange places. So I had this epiphany of maybe I'm being a bit silly thinking that I need to train anyone anything. What about if I train the human instead, instead of the dog? And so, or, or another way, what if I simply ask the dog what they prefer, what kind of play they prefer and make sure that the human engages in that play. And so that we're not, yeah, we're not forcing any poor dogs doing any, to, any, to do anything. So that's what we did. And so because I'm in the field of behavior analysis that uh, has a lot of uh, myth, like methodological details already figured out about how to ask nonverbal children on what they prefer, which those methods can be very easily altered, of course, slightly, but utilized in uh, non-human animals. And so we already had some methodologies available to ask animals questions about what kind of toys they prefer. And so we did that at the shelter. We validated a quick assessment of what, what's your preferred uh, toy type. And then once we've understood or once we've asked each of our dogs in experimental condition what their preferred toy type was, or if they had no preference, like if they actually did not want to play at all, which was, I think the majority of dogs actually did not want any toys. And this is totally understandable. These poor dogs are in uh, really stressful conditions. You don't, the last thing you want to do is play with a stranger. Right. And so in that case, in the experimental dog condition, then we would write down, okay, this dog's preferred toy is this or no toy. And we left the control dogs as they were. And then we sat around in the shelter with my uh, undergraduate research assistants and waited for real adopters to come through, waited for real adopters to say, oh, I, I want to take a, a look at this dog. In this case, uh, then we took a look if that dog was in the experimental condition or the control condition. And if the dog was in the experimental condition, we would find out, okay, that dog, that's right, the tennis ball is the preferred toy. And so then we would take the tennis ball, take the dog out, and uh, essentially tell the adopter. So now we manipulate the adopter. We tell the adopter first, actually, can you, can you please let the dog pee for two minutes? Uh, we tried to, <laughs> we tried to get them to like ignore the dog for a little bit as much as we could just for the poor dogs. Uh, and, and then we would have a very, uh, we would have no toys in the play yard, except this one preferred toy. And we would uh, model the, the play. So we would have some treats. We would say, oh, the dog loves to play tennis here. Let me show you how to do it. So we would throw the tennis ball. The dog would grab it because we knew that that was going to happen because we already knew that dog was going to play with a tennis ball. And then we uh, substituted the ball for a treat. And then we 
gave everything to the adopter and said, now you try. And then we coached them on play. We could also, in this point, if the dog kind of, for example, didn't play, you know, did something weird, we could kind of quickly fix the play to make sure that they still play correctly. But soon enough, typically the people at this moment, they, they want to play, but at some point they also want to touch the dog, which is, for some reason, touching, petting is the, is the next thing that people wanted to do. Yeah. And so at that point we were, we would find the dog, put a leash on, bring them to a bench and essentially keep that dog in very close proximity using treats and a leash and would continuously provide the adopter with treats to provide this dog with treats and sneakily lure the dog into a down position. <laughs> uh, so it looks like the dog is resting nearby. Right. And so kind of forcing that dog onto the adopter to, to, for the adopter to feel quite special. And so by doing, and then the control condition, we let the naturalistic things happen as they would. There are plenty of toys in the yard, you know, anything they wanted to do, whatever they wanted to do. So everything was not controlled in this way. And in fact, we, when we looked at the adoption success following these meet and greets, we were able to increase adoption, which was excellent. So it was the first time in research where we actually saw an effect on adoption rates. It's actually very difficult to increase adoptions in the shelter. And so we were very happy that it managed to get that adoption increase. Yeah, because there have been quite a few studies that have shown no results. Yeah, sadly. And if, if people who are listening to this podcast are really excited about listening to this and they want to know, you know how you did the toy assessment, is that information that is available online that is available or... online i can also provide video um if that's something that's oh, useful sure yeah on the other hand it's a very simple process and actually i bet you already know the preferred toy type of your individual dogs that you engage in oh i should yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the shelter environment you if you wanted to kind of provide a how to for a shelter setting um, i have a video for that and i have some guidelines but but it could be as simple as just can you figure out which toy is preferred by just throwing various toys and seeing which toy the dog goes after? And just make sure that you do that a few times so it's not just a novelty effect. And and that's it. There's just a couple of trials throwing each toy around. <laughs> not time intensive no, or resource no. intensive, which is another important aspect when when working with shelters. So that's wonderful. Oh, I forgot to uh, say something that's really important here, because uh, as I said, most dogs actually will not like any toys. So what do you do in that situation? Because that's probably the one that you're going to encounter as a trainer in the, in the shelter environment. And so in that case, tossing a treat and telling the dog to find it is surprisingly a totally funny game for adopters. They, they buy that, that that's a toy play. That's, they, they think that's play. <laughs> so just say, oh, the dog loves to uh, play find it. Oh, let me show you. Find it. Right. And you toss and you tell the doctor, now you try, toss the to toss the treat and ask the doctor to find it. And so they, especially children, think that's really fun. Yeah. Well, that's great because those are all, again, really easy, simple things. And I can put the information, uh, I'll have it in the podcast notes so people that are listening to this can go and, and get access to that. So the other thing that you have looked at in shelter environments, as you've already alluded to, is this human side of things. And I think we could, I'm sure we could fill the rest of the hour and probably will fill the rest of the hour talking about this side of things. So why have you, why don't you just talk a little bit about what you've been focusing on mm -hmm. in terms of the human side and then this role of sort of inequity and vulnerability yeah. and how that impacts both surrender and adoption. Absolutely. And um, I can start probably with how kind of the, the, the way I got there. Yeah. And the way I got there was actually continuing to look at this adoption. of So we're increasing adoptions and how do we increase adoptions? 
And um, in, in our research at Texas Tech University, when I was a professor there, we did these adoption events. We wanted to continue this research and see how do people choose dogs in adoption event settings rather than mm-hmm. shelter, brick and mortar shelters. And so we put on these adoption events and we uh, looked at behavior. That data is still being analyzed. Or I'm a bit slow in that data, but we're, <laughs> we're going to pull it up. But, <laughs> but one thing that we did is that without much thought, we also asked, we had like this survey of visitors who are coming to these adoption events. And we asked for their zip code. I'm not sure why we asked for their zip code, but what we did without much thought to it. And so then after we had the data, just for fun, I plotted the zip code onto a map of Lubbock, Texas. I realized that the only people who are coming are coming from affluent neighborhoods. And it's it started a big kind of thought process for us. It's like, what are we doing? Um, and it makes sense because where are we advertising adoption events? We're advertising cafes, we're advertising in yoga studios. Or, and so we're really, really targeting affluent families. This seems like a problem. This seems like not an equitable situation. And and fundamentally, I think at the same time that many people are, well, many people have already been talking about this for decades. This is a moment where I also woke up to the situation. And I was lucky when I move, moved to Canada, where the BCSBCA is also very interested in these kinds of topics. Dr. Emilia Gordon, um, who's a shelter veterinarian at the BCSBCA, has already been thinking a lot about uh, diversity inclusion in sheltering. And we kind of continued along. And there was, I also have a, a wonderful master's student, Alexis Lee, who's entered this, uh, entered her lab and into this uh, research. And also I need to mention my former PhD student, Kelsey Brown, Dr. Kelsey Brown, who's also continuously working on this topic. So we have a big team kind of trying to figure out where we're making, what we're doing wrong in the shelter environment. And so the first thing uh, we did is to ask the question of who are we serving in an animal shelter facility? Is it the case that we're just working with affluent families, or at least like we're adopting only to affluent families? And what is kind of what's going on? And so Luxus, my master's student, took data from the BCSBCA, the surrender data uh, of owner surrenders of of dogs and cats, or actually all animals, and also looked at the postal codes of, um, of those surrenders. And uh, Canada has uh, census data that we use uh, called the CIMD, Canadian Index of Multiple uh, Deprivation. This kind of data is, is available just publicly, and it separates these um, postal codes or kind of areas of dissemination, they're called, into various factors. So, for example, each, each area um, has a score on ethnocultural composition. This is a proportion of population, for example, who self-identify as a visible minority, proportion of uh, foreign-born individuals, and so on. Situational vulnerability, which is um, items like proportion of the population that identifies as Aboriginal, low income, single parent families, and then economic dependency and residential instability. So there are four factors: ethnocultural composition, situational vulnerability, economic dependency, and residential instability. And she connected those with that shelter intake data. And what she found was certainly striking: that it was the case that across all of these factors, they were different, they affected the intake of animals. So animal intakes were different. Uh, For example, areas of situational vulnerability differed by animals who are coming in unhealthy and treatable, essentially ultimately being euthanized in the shelter. And so so the details were very uh, Vancouver specific or British Columbia specific. So they, those details are less important than the fundamental point of these are connected issues. That animal shelter services, we are fundamentally part of social service. We are part of the community, part of society. We cannot uniquely look at the shelter environment as independent from the rest of society and try to create interventions 
within the shelter and being blind to societal issues that we have to open our minds. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because there's, and I do think that this is changing and certainly not everyone in the rescue world shares this view, but I do think there are, there does tend to be a lot of judgment that comes down on people who are surrendering animals and that they are just being irresponsible or not caring about the animals. And I think what you're finding in these studies is really highlighting that that there's so much going on that is often out of control of the people who have these animals and that simply judging them for essentially being bad people is not (laughs) going to effectively address the issue. Absolutely. So I think what we're finding is that these, that we need to move away from this concept of personal responsibility. Of course, uh, this doesn't mean that if someone is cruel to an animal or purposefully neglectful, this is not, this doesn't change. But what I think you're totally right, that it, it moves away from our very rigid understanding of kind of, if you surrendered an animal, you're an irresponsible owner. This really ignores any systemic issues of society. And we cannot do that. We have, with a lot of, this kind of ties into the climate change discussion, as our communities are going to become, kind of struggle more and more economically, we're going to have fewer and fewer resources, we're going to have higher inflation, we're going to have problems, we're going to have problems with housing. We are going to see that shelters will need to service people. And so we, this is certainly the time to kind of stop this obsession with this individual responsibility and really see where can a shelter, what can a shelter do to support the community? Because our, our purpose of animal sheltering is to support human, human and animal communities. But well, we cannot separate those two things out. It's really one welfare. It's, it's not just animal welfare. Human welfare and animal welfare are interconnected. So we cannot just look at one without touching the other. Thank you for listening to the Research Bites podcast. The full version of this podcast is available to Research Bites members. As a member, you will also get access to a monthly webinar and discussions on current research in dog behavior. You can get more information or join at www.sciencemattersllc.com. You can also find the link in the podcast description. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.